singularity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Singularity One on One. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates. Today, my guest on the show is Dr. Anders Sandberg. Dr. Anders Sandberg is a well known transhumanist and is currently a um, research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. I had to double check that title there to make sure I get it right. So uh, without further ado, let me welcome Andres. This is his second time on the show. So welcome, Andres. I'm very happy to have you again on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. Excellent. So today, uh, the purpose of our conversation today would be to focus entirely on transhumanism. Uh, and also the ethics thereof. So uh, hopefully the time that we have allotted for it would allow us to get a lot deeper into the conversation than we managed to do last time. Um, let's begin with the first question here for those of our viewers who may not be familiar with the issue or the, uh, the definition uh, of transhumanism. What, in your opinion, Dr. Sandberg, is the uh, meaning of transhuman? transhumanism? I think the kind of quickest definition would be something along the lines of transhumanism is the idea that we can and should become more than human in both a physical sense, but intellectual and in a lot of other domains. For example, we might want to increase our lifespans. We want to be smarter. We want our emotions to not just be stronger, but maybe also more appropriate. We want to change ourselves to become something but would be outside the current range of human possibility. And why would we want to expand the range of our current possibilities? I mean, we are, as, as it is, we are the top of the food chain. We are the most sophisticated beings supposedly created by nature, at least intellectually, uh, and many would even argue spiritually. We are goddess, uh, God's best creations, so why should we try to improve on uh, either God's handiwork or nature's and evolution's handiwork? Well, because being human is not that fun a lot of the time. <laughs> when we think about it, a lot of the time we're actually suffering from all sorts of minor ailments and problems. There might be everything from forgetting stuff to the fact that our lifespan is too short to actually fully excel in many endeavors. You know, although we are very intellectually smart, most of us can't comprehend quantum mechanics, which is probably one of the simpler truths about the universe. There is so much we can't understand and know or do. And that is, of course, why the very human tendency to try to push against boundaries leads us to transhumanism. So if we go back in history to the Gilgamesh epic, that's the oldest written epic that has been uh, uh, survived so far. It's about a man's quest to become immortal. And that's been around for a long time. The fact that we don't live very long is a source of enormous grief. And similarly, of course, our lack of understanding of each other is actually causing a lot of damage to the world and ourselves. If we could fix that, I mean, we tend to think things would be better. Mm -hmm. You know, it happened so that I was just uh, 
kind of checking up on the Epic of Gilgamesh yesterday for another article. And at the end of that uh, sort of epic quest, uh, Gilgamesh discovered that, quote, the life that you're seeking, you will never find. When the gods created man, they allotted to him death, but life they retained in their own keeping. So why should our quest be any uh, have a happy end or better ending than than the one that Gilgamesh attempted so many thousands of years ago? Well, many quests might be meaningful even if they don't necessarily succeed. After all, the Gilgamesh epic works pretty good as an epic, although poor Gilgamesh ends up getting old and die eventually. And we might wonder if uh, the, the gods think that being immortal is so good. Well, in that case, uh, maybe we should try to get it anyway. Uh, it, uh, it's a bit like the old uh, argument uh, about the badness of death. But if death was a good thing, then the gods would want to die. <laughs> and the, the problem is, of course, that our quests, quite often we're misguided. We don't know really what we want. And when we get it, we discover problems. After all, if you were to ask our ancestors back in the Stone Age what they really wished for their descendants, it would say, oh, as much food as you could possibly eat, especially if it was full of fat and sugar and salt. Mm -hmm. And we have achieved it. And we're getting fat from it. And we're, we're actually discovering that it's a pretty unhealthy diet. But it's hard to avoid eating because we evolved to kind of like that stuff. So we discovered that that previous quest, well, we fulfilled that, but now we need a new quest of kind of getting exercise and getting healthier food. So I'm pretty convinced that a lot of the things we're pursuing in transhumanism today are going to turn out to be quaint or misguided in the long run. But the only way of discovering that is actually learning from uh, what we discover as we go about it. And I think there are aspects of what we're pursuing that are so important and so good that uh, they're actually going to change the world completely. So, so one of the goals of transhumanism is to overcome death. Yeah, I think uh, at least we want to overcome involuntary death. Mm -hmm. uh, when you think about the word immortality, it seems to encompass the idea that you cannot possibly be killed by anything. And that's not true because, well, we're finite beings in a random universe. Occasionally, we're going to be unlucky. It's not possible to be completely safe. But we certainly should get rid of aging. If, uh, people should be allowed to live as long as they want to live. And then we can, of course, end their lives. Right now, we're kind of uh, at the vagaries of our biology and random events like getting infections or accidents. And we should try to bring that a bit under control. And, and so, in addition to, to that, uh, making death sort of a optional, a by choice only, or by some kind of an accident, um, with respect to life itself, what is the promise of transhumanism in terms of enhancing and improving the human condition? Yeah, so I think one important aspect of transhumanism is that it questions the human condition. Most of the time, we just take for granted that this is how life works. Most people take for granted, yeah, of course you're going to be aging and dying. That's just how it is. Transhumanism makes the suggestion, maybe we could do something about it. Similarly for a lot of other things, uh, our ways of thinking, our motivational system, what uh, we like, what kinds of bodies we have, all of those aspects of a human condition might actually be possible to modify. And then we can ask the question, 
would it be a good idea to do it? Mm-hmm. And transhumanism is all about pushing these boundaries, experimenting with them. And in some regards, we might actually discover subtle aspects. For example, when it comes to memory, perfect memory is probably not a photographic memory that retains everything we experience, like some kind of giant videotape. Mm-hmm. It's rather that we remember what we need to remember, and if needed, we can go in and retrieve things. But it's very different from just the naive view of photographic memory. Similarly, enhancing a life. Well, what does that mean? Well, we want flourishing, but which is, of course, an old philosophical question. What is a good human life? How do we achieve that? Transhumanism is kind of looking at some of the technological answers and modifying the human to get more flourishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is very useful. But there is also an interesting question. Well, could we modify us so much that we're no longer having human flourishing? In that case, should we even be trying to pursue that? Yeah, yeah. there is one of the fears with respect to transhumanism is that the the bottom line of it is that it would lead to the end of the human race or humanity as we know it. Uh, some people say that, you know, technology and tra- the use of tra- technology uh, towards transhumanism would sort of create um, homogeneity of humanity, make everyone sort of the same. It would uh, destroy the differences that one can observe between human individuals. Other would say, well, it's on the contrary, it would actually enhance them. Uh, Where do you stand on that? Well, I think... uh, I think there is a difference between uh, missing uh, some good aspects of humanity and uh, having a kind of uh, the breakdown of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. So certainly we're losing a bit of diversity by curing diseases. But diseases themselves are so bad that we're actually quite happy to lose the diversity of a black plague and uh, smallpox. We want to have less of that diversity. Uh, similarly, we might be losing a bit of diversity by fixing something so we generally tend to do well. For example, we're losing the diversity of having a mixture of literacy and illiteracy in society by educating people. But again, that's a diversity we can do quite well without. Mm-hmm. The real fear is, of course, that we might lose important forms of diversity without noticing them. For example, some people like to point out that various genetic diseases also confirm uh, immunity, for example, to malaria. And this is a reason why sickle cell anemia is uh, quite widespread in Africa. Now, that is in itself a kind of interesting uh, problem because, uh, well, would a cure, if I were to offer a pill, for example, to cure malaria that also had sickle cell anemia as a side effect, would that be acceptable? And most people would most likely say, no, that's a medication that's too, going, uh, too many side effects. So, re- oh. But but I think the biggest fear, though, is that we are going to lose humanity itself. The meaning of being human, our human nature, somebody would call it our souls. Yeah, so that is kind of a more profound argument, except, of course, that what the heck is our souls? (laughs) How do you actually define this? And For example, Francis Fukuyama, who was very much making this argument in his book, Our Post-Human Future, he never defines that soul. He calls it factor X and kind of glides around trying to define it, mostly because any definition would be very easy to uh, attack. Yeah. Which, of course, leaves us in with this unease instead, which rhetorically works very, very well. But from a practical standpoint, if we actually want to think about, well, what is valuable about being human right now? 
Well, we want to have our rational thinking, but we also want, of course, our emotions, our social network. There is a rather big complex of what it means to be human. And some parts of that might be threatened by certain enhancements. But I think it's unlikely that all of them would be threatened. For example, some people say, oh, it's important for humans to be mortal. But when you think about most of the activities we do every day that make, give our life meaning, they're not, predis- they're not based on us being mortal. We don't marry because we're going to die. We don't marry because we're eventually going to have a divorce or become widows. Um, similarly, we don't uh, read books because if we don't do it today, we might die before reading uh, the book tomorrow. No, we read the book because it's interesting. Well, one of the arguments goes here that in a in a context where people would have almost indefinite lifespans, then nobody would be willing to take on the risky jobs, such as, for example, being a police officer, being a soldier, being a, an astronaut or, or, you know, taking any risks. Because, you see, it's one thing to be 30 and 40 years old and risk the other 30 or 40 or 50 years left of your life. It's another thing to, list, to, to risk the next few thousand years that you could live. And therefore, well, people would be less uh, risk-inclined and therefore there would be no progress. Well, it's an interesting question whether that would actually happen. Given that uh, young people today seem to be taking a lot more risk than old people, and they have the most to lose. And similarly, it also assumes that we would all become the same kind of very risk-averse people. I'm not certain that's actually true. I think uh, if people could actually set up their life uh, programs as they would, we might actually see more diversity. Because one of the main limitations of life projects today is that we tend to have to be squeezed in into a fairly short lifetime. Also, some of the more radical possibilities of life extension, especially when you get to things like brain emulation, might allow us to have backup copies. In which case, it not only might be possible to risk your current life, but you might actually have loads of copies at the same time. Maybe the, all of the police force is composed of the same policeman, all copies of him, and they might be dying left and right in the shootouts. That's not much of a problem, actually, for Joe, because he's always coming back from a copy. The perfect clone policeman. <laughs> yeah, I think we might actually want to have more diversity in a police force than that, but you can certainly imagine that case. In fact, in a set of rather post-human science fiction novels by John Wright, it turns out that Earth has an army consisting of literally one man. He's the army. He's very enhanced. He could, in theory, be multiplied, but usually there is no need of having more than one copy of him around because it's a fairly peaceful future. Wow, that's, that's very interesting. That's an interesting idea, and I hope the future is as peaceful as it's projected there. Uh, but, but, but getting back to the thing about uh, us all becoming these kind of bland, uh, plastic posthumans, I think it's a, a real concern. Uh, and Fukuyama has some interesting points in his book about it. Uh, so, for example, he points out that giving Ritalin to school children that's supposed to kind of enforce a certain norm on them, that you should be studious, concentrate, and don't disrupt too much in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And I think it's actually true that we do quite a lot of things to school children that kind of try to shape them into an approved form. The problem is, of course, that a lot of that is also what we actually want. We don't want too much disruption because many kids with ADHD actually can't study because we can't focus. So we want, and we need to conform to some extent in order to live in a modern big society. Uh, a society made out of total nonconformists wouldn't hold together. 
and wouldn't survive. Mm-hmm. So what we want is an appropriate level. Conversely, we also have this interesting thing that modern Western society allows more diversity than any other society in history, partially because it's so rich. We can afford to have people to become goths or punk rockers or uh, reclusive researchers or uh, other weird activities, which are not terribly productive, but very individual. We can afford the individualism because we're actually rich and well-developed. And we also have a social structure that allows us to function somewhat well together, despite having very different religious views and philosophical views. Many other societies throughout history have had enormous problems with that and wanted to make sure that everybody were alike. And this is, of course, something we might be concerned about, that future society might again go into that trap. But that's kind of more an issue of democracy, political science. How do we safeguard what we have achieved? Mm -hmm. Well, part of uh, another sort of flavor of that argument that uh, transhumanism leads to sort of a conformity is that sort of the peer pressure or sort of coercion, even if what some call it, argument with respect to imagine that, say, you're an athlete and uh, all the athletes you're competing against are enhanced. Then if you want to have any chance whatsoever to compete against them, you would have to enhance yourself too, whether you like it or not. Maybe you don't want to enhance yourself, but you have to. And the same applies for, uh, you know, in, in competition for jobs, uh, for school, for academic accomplishments, etc. So therefore, the argument goes, you know, the people who refuse to uh, enhance themselves, they would fall behind and therefore most of them or many of them would have no choice but simply to follow the lead of the others. And I think this is true also for a lot of technology. We don't normally recognize an enhancement. If I want to have an academic career but refuse to learn how to read and write, it's not going to work because all the other academics are enhanced by the reading and writing ability. I have to conform even if I had uh, some deep philosophical uh, argument against it. Most of us would, of course, laugh at this example and say, yeah, yeah, reading and writing is very different from taking, let's say, a drug that enhances you. But actually, it changes the way our brains work. It's a kind of profound change. And there is a price of not participating in whatever competitions are going on in society. I think the best thing we can do is actually set up a society that can sometimes actually allow people to get around paying that price. For example, the Amish people of the United States they don't use the advanced technology of the surrounding mm-hmm. society. And it acknowledged that. It says, yeah, it's your right. You're not going to be able to participate in most of the economy simply because you don't have the right kind of education and technology. But still, you have a right to do that. They're going to be paying a price, but they might even feel that is worthwhile. The real problem would be, the Amish said, we want to be in, a, in Silicon Valley. We want to participate in technology race, but not use electricity. At that point, it doesn't work anymore. At that point, it's no longer a valid argument. Mm -hmm. So the real problem is, of course, what of these races are appropriate? Which ones make sense? So thinking about the athletes, they're involved in a pure competition. Uh, You want to be the best. You want to beat the others. Think about mathematicians. Well, they might be competing to some extent, but they also want to prove interest in mathematical theorems. They want to get closer to truth or discover amazing new patterns. In that area, well, enhancement might have a bit of a competitive advantage, but more importantly, it would enable them to deal with more complex lines of reasoning, more deeper theorems. 
So it depends a bit on what you're doing. So think about students at a university. To some degree, they're doing a competition for the best grades, but they're also supposed to learn something and perhaps also socialize and become better people in some sense. Well, the competition part, enhancement would indeed lead to a kind of pointless uh, race where everybody is trying to beat everybody else and they're actually not benefiting from the enhancement. So that's bad. We wouldn't want that to happen and we don't want enhancements that promote it. On the other hand, the learning aspect, well, that's great if we learn more. Enhancements that kind of give you an absolute advantage rather than a relative advantage, that's good. And then you have a socialization thing, interacting with others, figuring out what the world is like, defining who you are. Well, it's a bit unclear what kind of enhancer would work. Maybe the beer and they're drinking in the pub is actually much more relevant enhancer than any of the smart drugs they could possibly take. And and isn't there a risk that we would end up with some kind of um, enhancement arms race um, where, you know, students or people who are competing for limited resources, be it like Olympic gold medals or anything else, would constantly overclock their hardware in order to get to a higher and higher level. And then again, the competition would follow their lead and try to go one step further and etc. So there would be a kind of an arms race. Yeah, I think this is a real problem in competition situations and situations where people think it's a competition. For example, at least for males, it's an advantage of being tall. So yes. short people are being given growth hormone but then parents are actually interested in even giving their normal kids growth hormone because it would be a good thing to be a little bit taller. But the advantage is only depend on being taller than other people. Exactly. So if parents were starting to give growth hormone, we would all end up uh, hitting the ceilings all the time, but we wouldn't actually be better off. Mm -hmm. So that would be a good example where the, it's only a relative advantage uh, to be tall. And it's not really worth ex enhancing that one, but there is a temptation. On the other hand, having a good memory, it's useful for having a good life, both because you can kind of learn more, but also remember interesting things you learned, your holidays and your loves and so on. So in that regard, it doesn't matter if I had how much my, my memory is in relation to anybody else. It's both good. It's good for all of us to have better memories. So I think there, it's true that there might be these arms races, but that suggests that we might want to do something about the competition situation. So in some societies, competition is a much more strong force than others. For example, Gerd Hofstede, who studied cultural dimensions by looking at how different people in different nations answer surveys, found that uh, in the U.S. scores very high on what he called masculinity, the tendency that you need to be first, you need to compete to do well. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Sweden scored the lowest of all countries, even the most feminine country by his standards. Uh, and the, the kind of Swedish view uh, is that, yeah, it's nice that people compete, but everybody should be a winner. And that, of course, has also disadvantage because you get rather laid back. You're not very good at being entrepreneurial. Uh, entrepreneurial Swedes tend to go away from Sweden. But at the same time, that social aspect, well, might make it uh, less uh, eager to use enhancement to get ahead of things. So this gets into this interesting issue that we need to frame enhancements and modifications of what it means to be human in our society. We need to interleave it with our culture, just as we've done with a lot of other technologies. When is it appropriate to enhance? When is it not appropriate? And what kind of enhancements do we actually want to use? Mm -hmm. 
And I personally think it's going to be a very individual thing, but people are also going to have to negotiate with their neighbors and their society about what enhancements are actually going to work at the university, in the sports arena, or in the world at large. Exactly. Uh, there comes that, that issue about negotiating and perhaps uh, legally and politi- politically setting limits uh, to uh, or some kind of uh, regulating the, the issue in one way or another. Uh, I mean, I'm reading a book right now by Daniel H. Wilson, which is called Amped. And um, it's a very interesting book. And one of the, uh, the things that he points out there is that the reason that Amish are able to coexist with the rest of society is that they do not threaten the core of the meaning of being human or the core of the rest of society. In other words, they leave society to exist as it is uh, on the premise that they're left in their own right to do what they see fit for themselves. However, as Daniel points out, and, and so does Hugo de Garris and many others, that would not be the case when people become transhuman or amped, as Daniel calls them. Mm-hmm. Because having a, a, a number of people who are amped would change the, or at least challenge the very meaning of uh, being human, would challenge what we presume are normal capabilities, be it physical or mental, and therefore had a huge social and political impact on our whole civilization. This in turn, some people point out, has high likelihood of bringing back strong backlash, sort of a new Luddite backlash, which in turn may lead to to the outright banning of, or at least the attempts of outright banning of, of such uh, enhancement technologies. Uh, uh, and, you know, just like people go and blow up abortion clinics, people could go and start blowing up uh, enhancement clinics. And this in turn can even lead in some societies uh, to, to civil war. Well, it's interesting to think about what is most controversial. And I typically find that talking cognition enhancement, people are not terribly upset. When I talk life extension, a lot of people immediately react very strongly. And that's partially because most of us have to, at some point, come up with a way of handling our mortality. So we do some explanation. We figure out a meaning or pattern of life, and we invest quite a lot of emotional capital in that. And the problem is, of course, if somebody shows up and says, oh, you don't need to die uh, anymore, we we feel probably fix this. You're actually threatening a lot of foundations of our identity. So people get very upset and uh, argue much against it. So I do indeed think that, yeah, there are some enhancements that might be enormously provocative and problematic. I like that initial point about, well, a minority that doesn't uh, threaten the core of society is not going to be attacked. But if it does, you're going to see it. However, the question is, is the enhancement going to be something that a little group of people are spearheading, or is it going to be something more wide and sweeping? So... When I started with transhumanism, I had this kind of teenage vision, of course, of us, the avant-garde, trying to be the early adopters and technophiles. We're going to test things out and we're going to get ahead to immortality and all the glorious stuff out there in the future. But over time, I kind of learned that, oh, technology actually develops much more slowly and in a different way from what I believed early on. In general, it's a lot of small steps. 
which means that it actually tends to diffuse quite widely in society. Radical new technologies emerge, but quite often they become adopted very quickly. So if you think about stuff like smartphones, they're an amazingly enhancing technology, and it actually did undermine profound aspects of uh, our normal view of humans. We're no longer alone anywhere. We can always be found, and we never really get lost. And soon, as we're starting to record everything you do, we're not really going to forget. Mm-hmm. That's a profound enhancement, yet we're not seeing that many people trying to burn the phone uh, towers. And the reason is, of course, well, they're useful. We adopted them. So in Amped and some of other stories, you get this sudden transition, a jump to very much enhanced ability in a small minority. And I no longer think that is very likely. We might see that for some technologies, and then we should really be cautious. But I think most of enhancements are actually going to be surprisingly well accepted once we get it. In between, it's going to be this annoying, slow process of actually tweaking and getting things working, getting ethics approval and all this boring stuff that means that we need to get our hands dirty in the actual political process and engineering and, oh, horrors, marketing. But but I don't think you're going to see that struggle. But we might be seeing a struggle, of course, between societies that are more or less open to it. So in the West, for example, we have a general skepticism against messing with human nature, partially because we think humans are in the image of God. Even atheists have kind of been steeped in this culture that says the human is sacrosanct in some sense. That's not necessarily true in all uh, cultures and societies. I wouldn't be surprised to see that, uh, for example, in China, parents would be very willing to give fairly radical enhancements to the kids. And then you might see an enhancement arms race between China and the West, at which point, you, of course, you might have a lot of Western feeling that we're forced into something we really, really hate to do. And that might indeed cause a lot of conflict. But I'm also rather confident in that if you actually get something that works, people would tend to pick it up. It's as long as it's something far out, something theoretical, a science fiction store or a thought experiment you offer them, then then people would bring in their deep philosophical convictions. But when the pill is actually on the table, people behave very differently. Well, I'd like to challenge that a little bit and suggest that uh, it's kind of geographically dependent. I mean, uh, because you're saying that uh, when something works, people tend to pick it up. But, I mean, look at uh, vaccines, for example. There's a very strong uh, movement, especially in the southern United States, against many, if not most, vaccines that we know work and save and have saved millions of lives. And... and, um, uh, I would like to suggest that the con- some of the conclusion that you mentioned in terms of your observation of, of uh, based as uh, in terms of your interaction with other people depends on where you go and speak. So mm. if you go and speak in Texas or in southern Arizona or in New Mexico, I would suggest that you would be a lot more challenged uh, on some of the basic foundational assumptions than if you come and speak in Canada or in Europe. Precisely because people uh, are uh, much more inclined to look at the at the world from a certain point of view, and from that point of view, uh, I think uh, advanced medical uh, technologies, uh, even simple ones like vaccines, 
let alone meddling with uh, smart drugs or neuroenhancements and things like that, are, I think, definitely a no-no. Like, simply ideologically uh, and politically, therefore, because that kind of a uh, attitude translates into people being elected into the legislature, be it Congress or the Senate. And, and then you end up with these, uh, you know, that radical opposition, which is very well represented politically. And therefore, those are exactly the channels which can create that kind of resistance. Uh, but it's also important to remember that ideologies change and adapt in quite interesting and surprisingly quick ways. So think about, for example, Christianity. Well, first of all, it's never been very cohesive. There's a lot of different groups. But its adaptation to the modern uh, modern society in the West was quite quick. And many churches have adopted their uh, views, for example, about homosexuality, amazingly fast in just a few decades. Mm. Similarly, a lot of the conservatives, they might also actually change in surprising ways. So I'm not thinking that we're all going to be having a happy, peaceful future once <laughs> the enhancers arrive. There is going to be plenty of interesting and complicated conflicts. But I don't think the battle lines are going to be terribly simple. To some degree, I think Virginia Postel nailed it fairly well in her book, The Future and Its Enemies. She argued that it's no longer the left-right scale that matters, but actually the dynamist statist scale. So the, the stasis say, the future is dangerous. We need to do something about it. Some of them are reactionary. They want to go back to the good old days, whatever they were. Yeah. Others are technocrats. They think that, yeah, we, we should get to the future, but it needs to be managed because otherwise things will get out of hand. Fortunately, we have a committee of experts who can do it. And then they try <laughs> to manage it. But meanwhile, you have the opposition. That's the dynamics to realize the future is great. We're going to try a lot of things, use what works, and of course, discard the approach that doesn't work. That means that you're trusting that, well, experimentation is actually safe enough. Now, this tension you can see across the board politically. You can see it both in terms of what new institutions are people allowed to do, what are people allowed to do with themselves or the environment, but also thinking. And I think we're going to see a lot more tension between these ones, as well as weird alliances, of course. You find dynamism and stasis both to the left and right of the political spectrum. You can find the Christian and Islamic dynamists who are very, not, not liberal necessarily, but trying out new things. So I think uh, a lot of the uh, big political battles of the 21st century are going to be linked to this kind of biopolitics. The big question is, Robert, are we going to be seeing extreme polarization or not? I'm not certain about that. Mm-hmm. There is a worrisome trend, for example, in the U.S. towards extreme polarization, but exactly. there is also a worrisome trend towards kind of extreme uh, middle-of-the-road uh, consensus in Europe that might be just as damaging. Well, the way Daniel H. Dennett starts his book, for example, is with a decision of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, and it is a, a case of a little girl which is going to primary high school, and uh, she was ADD, and then she, she got a specific uh, AMP, uh, neuroenhancement, which allows her to focus much more. And she suddenly became the best student in the whole city. And uh, the Supreme Court, and, and, and then, you know, that scared other parents. Uh, then the issue became of one of public resources and things like that. Eventually, um, people tried to separate that girl from the other girls, 
or from the rest of the students in the school. Uh, it, the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided that there is no protection for people who are uh, enhanced in one way or another. And based on that no protection uh, case, then all discrimination started from there. Because basically the Supreme Court in a way said that if you don't have protection, then the Constitution doesn't apply for these people. And then but, uh, it, there was radical is, discrimination for everything. Yeah, but this is arguing from a fictional example, and it's a rather extreme one. I don't think it makes sense in terms of any American law and constitution, actually. It, it makes for a good story, but it's a bit like the X-Men. Wait a minute, uh, the X-Men uh, aren't they protected by the Constitution, etc. Any lawyer could kind of make a complete hash of the whole X-Men universe because it, it makes for good adventure stories. But it's pretty unlikely that you would get it. And if you would have a Supreme Court saying that certain people are actually not protected by the Constitution, then your problem is not enhancement. Then the problem is that you have a Supreme Court that kind of not just ignoring constitution, but uh, a few centuries of uh, liberal democracy. So I don't think that is a good uh, approach. I think we should be looking rather at, well, how do we actually handle the conflicts over different advantages we're getting in society? Mm -hmm. So, for example, when I was discussing enhancement with a few Swedish friends, they felt that it was not a problem because you could always do the Swedish thing, tax it. <laughs> and actually, if you think about it, some enhancement might be very expensive, in, in which case you might actually want to have a tax in order to provide it to poorer people. Now, I tend towards a kind of knee-jerk libertarian reaction, but it's not necessarily a wrong idea to do this taxation. There have been interesting ideas, for example, if genetic enhancement become possible or ex expensive and the government can't provide it to everybody, well, mm -hmm. you could have a lottery. There are a lot of different options and possibilities. Now, uh, in some uh, countries, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see that uh, really horrible things could go wrong. But that might be more of a problem of bad governance, that you have governments that actually don't care about human rights or that they have courts that make absolutely stupid decisions. But that just suggests that, yeah, yet another reason to make sure our governments uh, behave themselves. Yeah, but as we can see, it's a, it's a reality that government do not behave themselves, at least in many, I mean, look at Syria, right? Look at many other countries. So, so taking it globally, perhaps the governments would behave in, in, in Europe and or North America, but the rest of the world may, may have a very serious knee-jerk reaction towards those technologies. Perhaps, chi perhaps China would embrace it, but you have Africa, you have Southern Asia, you have the Muslim world. Uh, but but the problem is, what does this tell us? What should we do in terms of this? We notice that some technology might cause political upheaval, but so that's true for almost any technology. So this argument would just be an argument, oh, we should be very cautious about developing any technology that could affect society, which would mean that, well, should we allow any more progress on Facebook? Yeah. Because Facebook is probably also as powerful and subversive and dangerous to societies as any enhancement technology. And of course, when phrased as Facebook, we realize that it's going to be pretty tough to control that technology, despite it essentially being run by a single com a company that could, in principle, let's say, be socialized by the US government or we could uh, let the United Nations run it. Yeah. Similarly, Wikipedia is, again, 
an extremely subversive and powerful technology, but probably changing our thinking more than any amount of Ritalin has ever done. <laughs> but again, it's very hard to control and deal with. Yeah. So I think the general lesson should be, yeah, we probably have a good reason to try to control governance much more strongly than in the past. And yet the price of not doing that properly could be much worse. So in my research on global catastrophic risk, I noticed that there is a power law distribution of war sizes. This has been known for quite a long time. It's called mm -hmm. the Richardson law. Yeah. But it also turns out that there's a power law for democides when governments kill their own people. Now, what is the lesson from this? Well, it seems like governments are actually among the most dangerous technologies on this planet. So we really have a good reason to try to rein them in, especially since we're getting technologies that are going to empower our governments, like global surveillance systems. So it might be more imperative than ever to not just create tolerant societies, but also figure out ways of keeping governments accountable, transparent. And that might indeed require a lot of serious, which is a rather horrifying thought, but still it's better than the alternative to blithely say, oh yes, something will, good will happen. And then we allow ourselves to slowly drift into totalitarianism or worse. Yeah, I, I, I really hope you're right. It's just that, you know, I'm way too close to the United States. And even in Canada, I'm seeing this kind of radicalization. And, and you know, so concerns like, for example, gay marriage and, and the, the opposition to it in the United States, it's, it's flabbergasting. Like the amount of opposition you get is, is just shocking to me. Uh, the fact that, you know, it's impossible to be elected to be president unless you uh, profess a belief in God, for example, is another thing. So all those things are signs to me that we are very far from, from, from those uh, places where we won't want to be in terms of tolerance and, and uh, transparency and, and sort of cohesive societies. And I only see the radicalization, you know, uh, happening. Uh, but let's move on. Yeah, actually, it's a good demonstration that just doing enhancement on the individual is not enough. We actually want our institutions to be enhanced too. Mm -hmm. uh, so, And that's, of course, something traditional transhumanists have not really been thinking much about. So if one were to criticize transhumanists, that it often be very individual-centric. Mm -hmm. But we actually need enhanced institutions. Okay, so, so let me move on here then with this question. What, in your opinion, is the most likely path towards uh, enhancement? Um, is it sort of a medical supplementation, uh, like smart drugs and so on, or is it some kind of a neuro or AI prosthesis or smart prosthesis? Well, smart drugs already exist, uh, and people are already taking them. It's just that their effects are fairly modest, uh, between 10 to 20% improvement on lab tests, and we don't even know how well they work in real life. So far, nobody has do, done a proper study of students who take them versus students who don't take them, what the grades are. It ought to be done. We ought to be trying to get, gather data about the long-term effects. But because uh, of various reasons, including ethics boards and being a bit scared about asking these questions, it has not been studied properly. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, of course, enhancements in the form of smart devices are uh, enormously important. They actually change things quite a lot because yeah. they're external, cheap, easy to replace. People can try them out and you have a lot of innovation going on. Mm -hmm. So right now, the devices are leading. That might change, of course, if we start to learn really important things about brain chemistry, uh, especially if we've come up with something that's more useful. 
brain implants are much more dramatic and they would require us to have some fairly non-invasive method of putting something into our heads. Because right now we don't want to go to a hospital and have major brain surgery for a small advantage. It needs to be very big for us to take that pain, risk and effort. Yes. So I think the brain implants are going to be far away. And in, mean, in the meanwhile, of course, we're go all going to be interested in the smartphones and Google Glasses and the stuff that might give us that information. We might be seeing interesting tinkering with uh, gene therapy. Uh, so that has been kind of developing much more slowly than was originally envisioned, partially because of some safety concerns. But we're also getting better and better at figuring out our genomes. And we might even be doing tricky things by modifying our gut flora. After mm -hmm. all, we have trillions of uh, little organisms living in us. Yeah. We can modify them relatively easily by drinking the right modified yogurt and can have them release uh, stuff that interacts with us. So there's a lot of interesting options here. However, I think for the time being, uh, the thing you can really do are mostly mental software, like learning men men mental techniques, better ways of doing rational thinking external software and hardware in the terms of our tools, and slowly biotechnology is emerging. The really important part is, of course, will it emerge far, fast enough so some people at my age, for example, can benefit from extended lives and eventually kind of reach longevity to take off? Well, we don't know that yet. Mm -hmm. Well, according to Aubrey de Grey, we may not be so far from reaching what he calls longevity escape velocity. Well, you know... Uh, at least that's his claim. Uh, uh, the problem is that generally making claim about how good our technology will be in the future, they don't work very well. We're very bad at predicting technology, which is interesting on its own. Uh, some technologies seem to be developing fairly smoothly like Moore's law, but that's almost an exception. Most technologies seem to be doing a bit of a jumps, mm -hmm. mainly because they're idea-based. So the more breakthroughs in science or smart new ideas are necessary, the more unpredictable they are. They go from nothing to a lot of function. This is, of course, why artificial intelligence can be rather scary. And this is also why we can't really predict the next killer application and why social networks, which in retrospect were really obvious, really surprised a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, let me ask you this, that we can slice enhancement uh, in another way too. Personal and collective enhancement. So, for example, most of the issues that we discussed up until now pertain largely towards the individual level of enhancement. But what about those cases where you have collective enhancement? So, for example, it could be a platoon of soldiers or it could be a soccer team of players that wants to collectively enhance themselves in such a way so that they have instant communication between each other and know instantly who is where at any time on the play field just so that say they can perform better on the olympics or in the world cup well in, it might be an interesting question of course whether other teams are enhanced in the world cup but the platoon of soldiers might be even more relevant is it a good thing to have better soldiers and that of course depends on whether the soldiers are fighting for your side or somebody else whether we're framed in a good ethical framework that actually keeps them from doing war crimes or not. Just having better function does not necessarily mean that they're better or worse. There is an interesting problem in the case of the soldiers, and to some extent the athletes, and that's their free choice. If you sign up for a military, your freedom gets extremely restricted in many domains. Yes. 
much more than you would ever be allowed to restrict the freedom of a corporate employee, for example. This makes enhancement in the military an interesting and slightly worrisome prospect because the military have been interested in performance enhancement for a long time. They've been doing various experiments which would not have been ethical uh, in academia. There are some very good research on uh, stress responses during Hell Week for American Marines, for example. You would not be allowed to normalize. The Navy SEALs. Yeah, you're not allowed to subject normal people to those levels of stress, but they provide very useful data about how certain amino acids can replenish your uh, nervous system and so on. So the problem might be, of course, how do you say no to that kind of enhancement? And what do you do after the soldiers are decommissioned? So a collective enhancement poses interesting extra problems because people are involved. So in my own research, I've been looking at love enhancement. If you have a couple, they have a bonding in their minds to each other. They feel good emotions when they meet each other. They want to stay around each other. Unfortunately, over time, this might fade in some couples. And I think we're on the verge of actually figuring out the neuroscience of what's going on. And most likely, you could take something like an oxytocin enhancer that helps that love bonding. That seems to be an ethical thing to do. It's relatively unproblematic, except, of course, that now you get into questions, what happens since one member of a couple wants to do the enhancement, but not the other? It's roughly the same problem, of course, as marriage to counseling. If one Mm -hmm. member wants to go to the marriage counselor, but the other one doesn't. So it's not a terribly new problem. The real issue, of course, as we think of the soldier example, might be as you get a larger group, the amount of problems probably grow at least with the square number of members. Mm-hmm. And, and another issue that, that uh, comes to my mind here is at what point uh, is there a sort of a cutoff point beyond which enhancing a group of individuals basically turns them into uh, a cluster mind? That's a good question. We have not had that experience yet, so we can't tell. But here is my guess. Uh, So between the hemispheres of the brain, there is the corpus callosum containing about 10 million uh, nerve fibers. I feel like one person, despite having two hemispheres. So that amount of bandwidth is probably enough to keep uh, somebody feeling like a unified mind. So uh, 10 million nerve fibers firing at most at 1,000 hertz, that's about 10 gigabits. So at that bandwidth, we might actually have a chance to create a group mind. It's not clear how little bandwidth uh, we could get away with and still create a group mind. And it might be that you need to organize things in a very different way. Mm -hmm. We're not built to be part of a group mind. However, we're social creatures. We quite easily slip into roles in a group and quite often in some situations forget who we are. We just see the goals of the group. This is perhaps one of the reasons people like playing team sports. It's actually kind of enjoyable to be part of a mass. Sadly, it's also why a lot of people fall into riots. Even fairly normal people might get dragged into this riot. Well, if not group mind, at least the perception that we are one. Mm-hmm. Now, in order to actually connect people together to do this effectively, you need some form of communication. And most communication is verbal. Uh, And that has a fairly low bandwidth. But I think under some circumstances, you do get people who kind of get into a resonance and work well together. Perhaps the most interesting examples of uh, people playing alternate reality games online. Occasionally, 
Definitely not always, but sometimes you get a community of people who are trying to solve the puzzles of alternate reality gaming and they become suddenly a very effective problem solver. I think the first observation was in the uh, uh, game around the movie Artificial Intelligence by Spielberg. They had a kind of online game with mysteries, fairly hard problems. Yeah. And it turned out that the community became a very, very powerful problem solver where people slotted in their skills and abilities. This has been repeated for a few other games, and some people involved in work on serious gaming are very interested in learning how to achieve this. Because right now, we seem to be best at making this for games rather than for solving real problems, which is kind of sad. Ideally, we would like people to form these online problem-solving communities to solve the big problems in the world. Of course, having these kind of powerful collective minds might also be causing a lot of problems. You can certainly imagine misguided minds. And we certainly have a kind of online riot. <coughs> Sorry. And we certainly have things like online rioting where groups like anonymous attack websites or particular. Mm -hmm. So it's not no, by no means all a positive thing. But it's an interesting thing that we might not need to have direct brain-to-brain -brain communication to get a group mind. It might need, we might actually be built to have it naturally. And that might be closer than we think. Well, isn't it the case, though, that sort of losing individuality and having a collective mind may actually can remove a lot of the friction of society, and that's why some people embrace it. And some people fear it because they say that transhumanism may ultimately lead us to sort of the Borg civilization, the sort of hive mind that we all become one way or another part of it. And then that would be the end of all individuality. Yes, of course, that might reduce friction in the system in general, but at what cost? At losing any individuality whatsoever? It's not just the individuality that matters, of course. It might be that uh, individuality is an illusion, as some philosophers and Buddhists would say. So actually, a society that kind of forgets individuality would actually be a great thing. However, there are other failure modes. Uh, Professor Nick Bostrom has written an interesting and rather scary paper about uh, some other ways the future of human evolution can go wrong. And in one of his uh, examples, he has the mindless outsourcers. So we network together and why should I learn uh, how to speak that language when I can download the skill? So we put more and more minds online and kind of just connect the parts we need. Yeah. And gradually, there is no self. It's just a lot of little modules connecting together to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Even there is no subjectivity. It's just a very rapidly growing economy with a lot of problem solving, but it's nobody in. There is nobody around. A few people might say uh, consciousness is cool, so they keep it. They're hobbyists, but they're an ever smaller part of the economy, and eventually they don't matter. So we're left with a uh, post-humanity that is not really human in any sense and doesn't really have any moral value. So that would be a kind of evolutionary existential disaster, which every step would be kind of rational and people would go along with. And I think this is the kind of underlying fear of a lot of critics of transhumanism. I'm not entirely convinced this is a likely outcome, but it's certainly something we should be on guard against. We need to actually figure out how to do enhancement that help our human or transhuman values. So in general, <clears throat> when we do simple enhancement, when we think what we would like, it's probably something like Greek gods. <laughs> Greek gods are roughly like humans, but better in all respects. Except, of course, that we're all living a life of a giant soap opera. 
which again, sadly, is probably what most people actually think would be a rather good life, having interesting, cool intrigues and big parties. Then you have a more extreme transhumanist views that, well, actually, there are new directions we might develop in. We might want to have new senses, new abilities, which are not found, which are completely outside the human range. <clears throat> and then you have a really interesting things that there might be post-human post states of mind that are extremely valuable, but you need to be post-human to even perceive them. Just like humans can enjoy philosophy and music, and the uh, apes can't. We can't explain to a chimpanzee just what's so good about going to a concerto or uh, solving deep mathematical problems. We need to enhance the chimp so he can understand it before he can actually experience it. So there might be these uh, tricky questions here, but we can't understand them until we go out there. But some of these directions might be traps. Mm -hmm. and, and those traps may have... Uh civilization-wide uh, sort of implications, perhaps. Yes, exactly. And that is why I think diversity is such an important value. Besides tolerance, which is necessary to uh, function uh, in a diverse society, we actually need diversity to do a lot of different problems, trying out different things, and also staying back. We should be very happy that we're Amish and uh, riders of the Mongolian steppes, because if we crash our civilization, they might actually be a bad Revive it. Yes, yeah. yes. That's a great point, actually. Um, let me ask you, because you just mentioned the term post-humanism. What's the well, difference between transhumanism and post-humanism? Well, first, there is a kind of uh, post-humanism that you find a lot in the critical theory uh, that is rather separate from transhumanism in the first place. And there is a lot of confusion when, about the term. Basically, that form of post-humanism is kind of going beyond humanism, thinking about the world from a perspective that's not human-centered. And then we have the kind of transhumanistic post-humanism, the idea that, okay, yeah, we can become something like Greek gods, but then we can become something far beyond that, something very, very different, something we might not even recognize as human. Now, the two kinds of post-humanism don't necessarily get along because uh, they're thinking about very different things in very different ways. And when you mix them up, total confusion ensues. Yeah. But focusing on the kind of more transhumanistic post-humanism. So this is based on the idea that, yeah, uh, getting rid of aging, making us smarter, healthier, uh, and so on, that's a good start, but it's not the end. It's not clear that uh, our minds should be confined by having one body on one planet. And that that mind should just run a single train of thought. Maybe it would be better to multitask or massively multitask or have, why have one pleasure system. Maybe we actually should want to have a lot of them or something like pleasure system or consciousness, but entirely new kinds of it. At this point, of course, a lot of critics immediately say, wait a minute, this is absurd. You can't want to have that because you want to have a good human life. You want to have human excellence. Maybe there is some kind of post-human excellence, but no human can aspire to it, to become post-human. You're no longer yourself and you're no longer human. It can't be rational to go there. Mm -hmm. But this, of course, hinges very much on your view on both what it means to be human and second, of course, personal identity. And people have strange views here. I, for example, think that I'm the equivalence class of all Anders-like processes. So I'm quite fine with the software versions of me or multiple instances. Other people say, no, no, that doesn't make sense because they have a very, very different view of what constitutes them. 
And indeed, some philosophers say, no, we shouldn't actually be caring too much about personal continuity, at least not in the forward direction. If there is some posthuman that can remember being me when it was young, well, that's good enough. Now I have survived in a sense. And people, of course, have utterly different intuitions here. So again, as I said earlier, when we're talking about something we can't actually do, but just imagine, and then we bring in all sorts of philosophical intuition that are probably very bad. We go much more when we get closer to it, we can actually try things out. But again, it's probably a good idea to have some people try things out first and tell us whether it's good on the other side. And, and I mean, there is also a benefit to philosophizing before we are at the cre- precipice, because the dangers at that moment, it may be too late. Yeah. Uh, so there are some forms of enhancement that might be ter- tremendously uh, dangerous. For example, if there is some, some kind of intelligence enhancement that doesn't make us a small amount of smarter, but an enormous amount of smarter. Well, the first person to get that one might become a super intelligence and take over the world and shape it in whatever shape he or she and thinks is good. That's probably not a safe situation. We want to be very careful about that. Right now, we don't have any inkling on how that could be achieved. But it's a pretty good idea to think about this, this as a problem and actually keep an eye open for that kind of risk. Mm-hmm. Is mind uploading a crucial, fe- a crucial feature of uh, the, that kind of a transhumanist posthumanism that you refer to? Uh, I think it's very nice because it's actually a form of becoming posthuman that we can describe in fairly high detail. It might turn out to be a bit like Victorian steam-powered rockets, but uh, in 200 years' time, we're going to be laughing at people thinking that uploading was the great solution to things. But right now, it's actually conceptually quite good. It gives us a way of thinking about how we could become post-human and what that might imply. So, for example, one implication is that we have need certain technologies, and they are going to be costly and take a time to develop, but we can also make sketches on social stability and issues about uh, research ethics. And then we can think about the society just after the transition. The economist Robin Hansen has done quite a lot of detailed work thinking about some of the uh, interesting implications here. That allows us at the very least to have a toy model of post-humanity, showing that at the very least post-humanity might involve something like this. And that's already useful. It's also easier to think about an uploaded mind than a pure artificial intelligence, because we have very little clue how such an entity would think. So it would be kind of useful to think about this also as a kind of baseline scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you this, because time is advancing here. We've already been talking for a full hour, and I just, I'm afraid that I dominated sort of the, the, the agenda in a way that may not be the the best way possible. So let me ask you, um, what are the major issues from your point of view that transhumanism uh, proponents and transhumanism opponents would have to deal with for the next couple of decades? I think right now the big problem is that uh, both opponents and proponents of transhumanism have been making strong claims about how good or bad enhancements are. And it's kind of up to actually testing them. I think we actually need more experimental uh, tests of the enhancement that actually exist. Uh, because in at least in biomedical enhancement, this is actually an area where ethics leads the technology right now. We have a few enhancement drugs. They're being used. We don't know very much about them. But we have a pretty big library of views on what they would imply. 
genetic engineering, I'm, I'm not too worried about it because it's a fair, although the technology and biology is advancing very quickly, implementing it human is actually going to take quite a while. After all, the human generation time is about 20 years. Uh, so there are other enhancements that might be much more radical, like if we get powerful nanotechnology. What I really think we need to figure out is actually how to handle the forms of collective intelligence we're developing, especially since we're getting things like ubiquitous surveillance and the Internet of Things. We're making a world of smarts, which is ideally amplifying our intelligence. And a lot of the discussions have been centered about biological stuff because that's kind of scary and interesting and sexy, while the little gadgets on the other hand are creeping up on us. Wikipedia is probably changing our minds much more than we would like to think, and we haven't really figured that one out. So I think that's the really short-term thing. I think we also have this problem of collective enhancement, not just making sane institutions that work, but also thinking about what kind of enhancement of how we function in groups can be useful. For example, caffeine turns out to make people more easy to persuade because it makes you think a little bit more. And typically a persuasive message works by having you think a little bit about it. As soon as it's inside your head, behind your firewall, it's going to affect you. Now, think about all the committees making decisions around the world. They're drinking coffee all the time. Maybe they're actually getting too much group think from the coffee. Maybe need to ban or decaffeinate coffee at these meetings, which is a weird thought and kind of anathema to, I think, to most of us. But still, that might actually be a problem. Conversely, we might figure out better ways of getting group decision-making, getting rid of cognitive bias. And then, of course, the real challenge, how do we actually put that into real practice? Because a lot of bureaucrats and organizations are not going to want to change how they've always done things. This is something I think both opponents and proponents of enhancement should both see is kind of a good thing. But that requires more measurability. We need to actually investigate things. Mm-hmm. In the long run, of course, we need to think about how do we deal with a, that more diverse humanity, both in terms of safeguarding diversity. I've been arguing, for example, that I have a morphological freedom, a right to modify ourselves. But that also includes the right not to be modified. I think we need, kind of need to get that into laws and ethical principles quite strongly. But we also need to think about what institution we need to maintain our diversity. And uh, this is, of course, something I think, again, the opponents and proponents should both agree on. Uh, For example, the disability rights movement quite often are very skeptical about talk about enhancement because they feel like they're uh, being criticized in a sense. Everybody wanted to become the Greek gods. Where is the room for a handicapped Greek god? Well, actually, Hephaestus had a bit of a handicap, but um, that's neither here nor there. The interesting thing is, actually, I think transhumanist and disability rights advocates both are on the same side. Both want a freedom to have bodies that are very, very different, and a society that allows them to be different. And quite often, of course, enhancements are not even obviously just an amplification of something, but going in an entirely new direction, which means that you might actually not be better, but different. So I think the real struggle is rather against those who think that the sameness is good, those who think that we need to regulate the future, making sure it doesn't uh, get out of hand. I think those are the really scary people. But I am I'm really scared that, historically okay. speaking, and even today, difference is like the biggest source of fear. We fear that which is different from us. And, and in, that's why I, I think, in my opinion, it leads to conflict. And when you 
take that to the issue of transhumanism, I mean, there is a very clear divide between Europe and North America with respect to a simple issue, a simple issue, quote, end of quote, such as abortion, for example, right? Let alone, and, and you know, the fact that in most European countries it's legal to have an abortion does not threaten those which make it illegal. However, if you have super advanced enhancement transhumanist technologies in some countries, that would certainly impact or create a fear factor in others. I, I think it's not just fear. It's also the problem that it undermines your view of life. It causes anxiety. Yeah. And anxiety is in many ways much more dangerous than fear. Because fear, you know what you fear and you want to do something about it. In anxiety, you're go just going around feeling anxious about it. And you might not even know what it is. Something is wrong. And then you channel your fear in some random direction. I think we're seeing that a lot in current politics. A lot of people are under stress, and then they latch on random uh, causes of that and try to blame the bankers or something else for what's actually a more profound source of anxiety. But I think the solution is not to, to try and, uh, to say, oh, we'll, we're going to regulate things to get things right, because we rarely get that right. And I don't think it's uh, trying to ban things, because again, the more you ban something, the more fearful it becomes. And you can see that, for example, in the war on drugs, which has kind of backfired spectacularly. But right now, no politic politician in the West can back down, although all the experts and all the evidence seem to point that they should. So it's quite possible to get into these kind of policy and cul-de-sacs that you're trapped in. That's a problem. That's why I think we need a lot of innovation. We actually need to try out things on small scales, trying new institutions and all sorts of things. We should be very happy that we have a big globalized world where people in different cultures can try different things. Mm -hmm. But we also do indeed need to kind of reassure people that, yeah, we also have safety nets in our own country. And maybe that we safeguard their rights not to enhance or not to try out things. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Dr. Sandberg, uh, last time you finished our discussion with... Uh, the idea that we are all amazingly stupid, but we can get better. So I want to ask you, do you have a different message that you want to end our interview with today? Yeah, I think we should embrace strangeness. Uh, I think uh, the problem we have uh, right now is indeed, as we've been discussing, that we're not very used to living in a world that is uh, as strange as the world is probably going to become. In a sense, of course, it's always been odd and strange, but we could ignore it. We didn't see it. But now it's on the internet. It's coming into our living room. It's showing up in our smartphones. The strange is kind of creeping up on us. And I think we need to some extent embrace, embrace that. That which does not kill us make us stranger. <laughs> I like that very much, actually. All right, fantastic. Well, Dr. Sandberg, thank you very much for taking time to be with us today. Thank you. It's been great fun.